Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Gundlach, and I am thrilled to share with you my views derived from a lifetime of listening on the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her, or God, I love him. Now, without any further ado... I bring you today's episode. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the premiere episode of Counter Melody. First, I want to say a few words about the voice as an instrument. The voice is unique in that the player of the instrument and the instrument itself are one and the same entity. This is an extraordinary thing. This happens nowhere else in the entire panoply of instruments. The other thing that the voice can do that no other instrument can do is that it can express itself in words. This increases exponentially the expressive potential of that instrument, and this particularly interests and fascinates me and has my entire life, in fact. It's a rather sweet story how I, at a very early age, became drawn to the singing voice. There were several different elements that played into that, but that's not what we'll be talking about today. We will come back to that in a future episode. I do want to also offer a huge thank you to everyone who contributed to my crowdfunding campaign to raise money to produce this podcast, to those who offered technical advice, who offered emotional support, who gave me a little nudge, a push, perhaps even a kick in this direction. I'm extremely grateful to you. In a way, it almost feels as if my life has been leading me up to this point. I've spent my entire life listening to great singers and great singing, and now I get the chance to share that with what I hope will evolve into a large and wide audience. I want to alert you to the web page that has recently come out for the podcast. That is countermelodypodcast.com. Countermelodypodcast, one word. Do go there because there will be show notes extensive show notes connected with every single episode. I've been spending a lot of time compiling things for this particular episode, and there's so much fascinating and interesting stuff out there. So do give a look at the website and do check in every week with every new podcast. There will also be a new set of show notes. So that's something to look forward to. So here it is, Counter Melody. Let's go.
For starters, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the beautiful logo that was designed for me by my friend, the graphic artist Joel Richter. I'll also tell you about that enchanting warbler you just heard singing the gavotte from Massenet's Manon, which I have chosen as the theme song for this podcast. In fact, both the photo and the voice belong to one and the same person the great Italian soprano Claudia Muzio, who is not, coincidentally, one of my favorite singers. She lived a short and tragic life from 1889 to 1936. Born in Pavia, Italy, she was raised in a multilingual environment, for her father was a stage manager at the Metropolitan Opera and Covent Garden. She returned to Italy to study music and voice at the age of 16. She made her operatic debut in Arezzo on January 15, 1910, stepping in as Messine's Manon for an indisposed colleague. From then on, until her death in Rome 26 short years later at the age of only 47, she built and sustained a career of such magnitude and accomplishment and caused such a furor among her fans that it's hard for us today to even imagine an opera singer creating such commotion. However, we do have first-person accounts of the hysteria her appearance has created, especially as recounted by her personal assistant, Mae Higgins, who traveled with her from 1929 onwards, and published accounts for the Claudia Muzio fan club in Chicago. There also exist some short, silent film clips, which can be viewed on YouTube, of Muzio's arrival by ship in Montevideo in the year 1935 in the company of the composer Licinio Refice, whose opera Cecilia she was about to sing there. This is probably the most extensive film footage still extant of the soprano, who was known as the Duse of song. La Duse del Canto, a reference to the great Italian stage actress Eleonora Duse, who was considered one of the first actors to mine the depths of her characters through exploration of their inner life. The two were mutual admirers of each other. Duse, speaking of Muzio, said simply, Così si canta in paradiso, or, that is how they sing in heaven. After hearing Muzio sing in South America, Duse went backstage to visit Muzio and gave her a small portrait of herself, which Claudia retained as a treasured keepsake. Muzio, then, was valued equally for both her singing and her acting, and like Duse, she was a person who lived a quiet, private life off the stage and who did not revel in or enjoy the trappings of fame. Also, like Duse, she was linked romantically to both men and women. Muzio's worldwide career was centered on several houses in particular. Initially, the Metropolitan in New York, where she created the role of Giorgetta in Il Tabarro in the 1918 world premiere of Il Trittico. She left the Met in 1921 to become one of three resident divas at the Civic Opera in Chicago, alongside Rosa Raiza and Mary Garden. She also was a treasured artist at the Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires and the Teatro dell'Opera di Roma in particular. I shall certainly be devoting a great deal of podcast time to Muzio, whose passionate vocalism and interpretations represent to me a pinnacle of vocal art. 
What I love about the 1922 photo that Joel and I chose for the logo is that here Muzio is an auditor instead of a performer, listening on headphones attached to a radio set to an auditory stimulus that clearly grasps her full attention. Who knows, perhaps she was even listening to a recording of her own voice. At the time of this photo, radio broadcasts were a brand new phenomenon, and headphones themselves had been invented a mere dozen years before. Now, nearly a hundred years after this wonderful photo was taken, my beloved Claudia appears on the masthead of this new podcast as I, still an occasional performer myself, assume a new mantle, that of host and guide for my listeners through the recorded legacy of great singers from the dawn of recorded sound to the present. But back to that theme song, Manon's Profitons bien de la jeunesse, or the gavotte. I put a good deal of thought into choosing this clip, and arrived at it, I must confess, by the process of elimination. At first, I thought I might even begin with a clip of me, myself, singing Schubert's Andi Musik, a setting of a poem by Franz von Schober, which has served as a guidepost for me throughout my own artistic life. But my producer informed me that my theme music should not be longer than 20 seconds, and I just couldn't find a way to reduce Schubert's profound utterance to that length. It also seemed a trifle presumptuous, perhaps, to put my own singing on as a paragon of vocal art. Ah, the perils of modesty. Thus, I found myself back at the drawing board, and I had a conversation with myself. Self, I said to myself, what about Lotte Lehmann, another of my handful of vocal paragons? Or Anita Cerquetti, the last great Italian dramatic soprano whose singing simply must be heard to be believed? Or the Norwegian Ede Norena, born Carolina Hansen, virtually unknown today by any name. She, after an unimpressive early career, reappeared at the age of 40 with a revamped voice and a new name to become the toast of the Paris Opera. Or another little-known but indisputably great singer, the Italian-American Florence Quartararo, who in the brief years of her active career, primarily at the Met, left a few treasured recordings, both live and studio, that attest to her artistry, which some, myself included, find comparable to that of none other than Rosa Poncel. And speaking of whom, why not Poncel herself? But wait, hold on. Why was I being such an opera queen and fixating again only on sopranos? What about the great Swedish baritone Hugo Haslo, whose powerful singing never fails to knock my socks off? Or the German Heinrich Rehkemper, also a powerful baritone, whose simple and direct Schubert recordings in particular represent a profoundly satisfying approach to this repertoire? Or Gérard Souzet, the great French baritone, who, as another of my artistic beacons, will also occupy pride of place in this podcast. Or Jorma Hörninen, whose fresh and rugged voice represents for me the personification of his native Finland. Or, 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 <laughs> in other words, I could go on and on.
Finally, I return to the Divine Claudia, however, since her spirit and legacy are already so central to this podcast. Why not use a clip of her singing something? Anything! Now, all I had to do was find the right clip. It might be helpful to note here that Muzio's recordings fall neatly into three different groups. With the exception of two test recordings of excerpts from Bohème and Traviata made in 1911, her first recordings are a group of sides made for the Pate Recording Company in 1917 and 1918. While charming in and of themselves, these recordings reveal an artist who had yet to reach full artistic and vocal maturity. Between 1920 and 1925, Muzio made her second series of recordings, a group of so-called diamond discs produced by Thomas Alva Edison's recording company. Diamond discs were thicker than regular 78s and had to be played on a special machine that was equipped with a diamond stylus, hence the name diamond discs. Because of these criteria, the Edison diamond discs did not have the same wide circulation that, say, RCA Victor recordings did. Muzio's third set of recordings were made nearly 10 years later, in 1934 and 1935, for Columbia in Rome, when, as one can hear, she is no longer in optimum physical or vocal health. In spite, and perhaps even because of these limitations, the artistic achievement exhibited in these recordings, surely her most famous, has ensured Muzio's reputation for posterity as perhaps the greatest singing actress B.C., that is to say, before Callas. Nevertheless, there's cause for regret over that near decade between 1925 and 1934, surely Claudia Muzio's artistic peak, when no studio recordings of any kind were made. In fact, during that time there exists only a single live recording from 1932, nearly unlistenable unfortunately, of the opening of the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco. This recording is of Muzio and colleagues in Act One of Puccini's Tosca. Even here, one wishes that a recording might have been made of the entire opera, or at least the second act. Rumors do exist of a live Forza del Destino from the Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires that, alas, has yet to surface. Yet, since other great live recordings from that period, from that same house, have indeed surfaced in recent years, and in excellent condition, hope springs eternal that one day we might even have further recorded examples of Muzio's art. Back to my theme song. There were so many potential choices from among Muzio's entire output of recordings, yet on reflection none of them seemed exactly right for some reason or other. 
Son pochi fiori from Mascagni's L'Amico Fritz, though beguiling was too long. Though a favorite recording of mine, Refige's Ombra di Nube, was too melancholy. Ernani Volami was closer to the mark, but Muzio's singing of certain passages wasn't quite up to snuff. Similarly, her recording of the Bolero from I Vespri Siciliani just didn't have the eclat that someone like Callas or the aforementioned Cerquetti brings to the part. Listening again to the mid-career Edison Diamond discs, surely my most treasured Muzio recordings, I thought, yes, these are beyond glorious. The ones that speak to me in particular are the scene from Leon Cavallo's Zaza, which I will discuss in a moment, Gluck's Spiaggiamate, Bachelet's wonderful song Chère Nuit, or the sublime Sorgio Padre from Bellini's early opera Bianca e Fernando. These recordings are all incomparable representatives of Muzio's art and among the greatest recordings of the human voice ever made. But they lacked one thing. They weren't particularly catchy or perky. What I wanted was an earworm. So I turned without enormous enthusiasm back to that first set of recordings made for Patti. Frankly, these aren't my favorite among her recordings. Among other problems, the surface noise, even in beautiful Ward Marsden remasterings on the now defunct Ramophone label, is distracting. And as I mentioned, she's less artistically formed here than she was just a few years later for the Diamond Disc recordings. Nothing jumped out at me as representing what I wanted to convey about Muzio. Almost by accident, I turned to her sole recording of the Gavotte from Massenet's Manon, mentioned earlier as the role of her stage debut. That tune is relatively well-known, memorable, and borderline perky. And at the tempo that Muzio takes, the refrain of the first verse comes in at just under 20 seconds. I thought that Claudia's singing of this, for her, a typical role, was enchanting, effervescent, and perhaps even perky. What I have already related about Muzio, some might be surprised that winsomeness was even a weapon in her arsenal. But it's not just this Manon recording. Listen, in fact, to her recording of Colombetta by the now forgotten Italian composer Arturo Buzzi Peccia, or two songs by the French composer Leo Delib. 
the Spanish-tinged Les Filles de Cadix, or Bonjour Suzanne, which she also recorded in an English version. Good morning, Sue. These are all positively enchanting recordings. to the Gavotte, because I love French opera so much, and because, in fact, I'm going to be doing a mini-series on great French opera singers, the more I thought about it, the more this seemed like the right choice. That's the story behind the theme song to Counter Melody. Now, I'd like to tell you about my first exposure to the voice of Claudia Muzio, followed by what is probably my favorite of her many iconic recordings. The first time I heard this voice, which her colleague, the great Italian tenor Giacomo Lauri Volpi, referred to as made of tears and sighs and restrained interior fire, I was a freshman at St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota, the single year that I spent at that institution. The college bookstore was having a fall record sale on discontinued and budget classical recordings. Back in the day, these cost only a few bucks a pop. Being an impoverished student, I limited myself to buying only two an Ernestine Schumann-Heinck Immortal Performances compilation of opera arias on RCA Victrola, and, on the Columbia Odyssey label, a selection of Muzio's Edison Diamond Discs. I enjoyed Schumann-Heinck, the great German contralto who later became a naturalized U.S. citizen, well enough, but I didn't fully appreciate her until years later. Now I consider her, along with her fellow coloratura contraltos, the Italian Eugenia Mantelli and the Swedish Sigrid Onegin, to be thrilling beyond words. But we'll save them for another podcast. Muzio's voice, on the other hand, reached out from beyond the crackling grooves and grabbed me by the throat. In those mid-career recordings, not only has Muzio achieved vocal maturity, but her dramatic insight is approaching full bloom as well. 
It is the way that she exposes the palpitating heart inside the music that reveals to me her true greatness. The aria that broke my heart was the first track on the Odyssey reissue from Leon Cavallo's Zaza, Dir che ci sono al mondo. This remains, in my opinion, one of the greatest recordings ever made. Before I play that entire aria for you, and I promise you that I will, I'd like to take a short detour just to discuss a little bit about the opera from which it comes. Zaza. Its composer, Ruggiero Leon Cavallo, is today considered a one-hit wonder. His pagliacci is still performed with great frequency in opera houses around the world, usually on a double bill with Cavalleria Rusticana, the other Verismo standby by that other one-hit composer, Pietro Mascagni. Zazà was premiered in 1900 at the Teatro Lirico di Milano, conducted by none other than Arturo Toscanini and starring Rosina Storchio, who is primarily remembered today for, in 1904, creating the title role in the disastrously received first version of Puccini's Madama Butterfly at La Scala. The libretto of Zaza by the composer himself is based on a French play from the period by the dramatists Pierre Berton and Charles Simon that was written for the popular actress Gabrielle Réjeanne. The piece was subsequently presented on Broadway in an English-language version prepared by none other than David Belasco, who also adapted John Luther Long's original story of Madame Butterfly for the Broadway stage. The play received numerous film treatments as well, including silent versions starring Pauline Frederick and Gloria Swanson, a 1938 version directed by George Cukor and starring Claudette Colbert, and a 1956 French version directed by the prolific cinematographer René Gavou and starring Lilo, who earlier created the lead in the original Broadway cast of Cole Porter's Can Can, the show which also brought Gwen Verdon to stardom. On the show notes page, you can find a link to a YouTube post of the 1923 Gloria Swanson film. It's well worth looking at. In recent years, the operatic setting of Zadza has had an unlikely and belated second life in the United Kingdom of all places, not usually considered a bastion of the Verismo repertoire. There, it was performed and subsequently recorded by the intrepid company Opera Rara in 2015, in contrast to their usual bel canto offerings. Two years later, the work was also staged by Opera Holland Park. (laughs) 
The title heroine, Zaza, is a performer at a provincial music hall in the south of France who wagers one of her colleagues that she can seduce a successful businessman named Milio Dufresne, who has been hanging around at the stage door. She wins the bet, only to surprise herself by falling deeply in love with him. After he leaves her at the end of the second act to return to Paris on business, she hears rumors about him having a mistress there. Stung, she tracks him to his apartment, where, by misrepresenting her identity, she gains access. There, she discovers that it is worse than she could have possibly thought. Not only is he married, but he has, in her words, an angelic daughter, un angelo per figlia. She has a tender but painful encounter with this daughter, Toto, which ends with the eager child playing her a piece on the family piano, which is, in fact, an actual setting by Luigi Cherubini of the Ave Maria text. As the child plays, Zaza muses bitterly on her situation, finally giving in to despair and fleeing the apartment without confronting Milio's wife. In the final act of the opera, Milio returns to his lover, where after a knockdown drag-out fight, she rejects him definitively, only to bemoan her actions as the curtain falls. In the early days of the opera's existence, its title role was quite popular among singing actresses, including Geraldine Farrar, who was the only singer ever to portray the role on the stage of the Met. She took her farewell to the opera stage, in fact, in this very role, one in which she would often suggestively disrobe at a crucial moment in the first act. An even earlier interpreter of the role was Eva von der Osten, who's primarily remembered today as the first octave in Der Rosenkavalier. She also stage-directed the world premiere of Arabella. Incidentally, her nephew was the famous heldentenor Wolfgang Windgassen. Another singer particularly noted for her portrayal of Zaza was Emma Carelli, who sang everything from Bellini's Romeo to Wagner's Kundry, with particular emphasis on the Verismo repertoire. With her husband, the former politician Walter Mocchi, she ran the Teatro Costanza in Rome from 1911 until her untimely death in a car crash in 1926. Incidentally, after his wife's death, Mocchi was married for a time to his wife's former protege, the Brazilian soprano Bidu Sayao. Sayao was subsequently married to the Italian baritone and voice teacher Giuseppe Danese, a noted interpreter of Cascar, the baritone role in Zaza, and a frequent stage partner of Claudia Muzio. In more recent times, the role has been undertaken by such admirable and vocally appropriate singers as Clara Petrella, Patricia Craig, Aprile Milo, and Denia Mazzola Gavazzini. For a real veristic treat, might I also suggest that you give a listen to two live excerpts from a 1950 performance at the Teatro San Carlo in Napoli, where, in a late career turn, the fearless and reckless Mafalda Favero, her once beautiful voice in tatters, goes up against the tenor Giacinto Prandelli and the baritone Carlo Tagliabue. Links to all of these and more are available, as always, on the show notes page. 
admirable though all these women were and are, it's no insult to any of them to say that none can really match the agonized recrimination that Muzio displays in her recording from November 1920. This is music ripped from the gut which demands plangent high pianissimi contrasted with a passionate use of chest voice, and Muzio displays both of these in profusion. She exhibits as well an identification with the words that is especially extraordinary considering that, as far as I can determine, she never sang the complete role on stage. into Zaza, I discovered almost by accident that there are three different performing versions of this opera. The original 1900 work was revised by the composer in 1919, the year of his death. It is this version that is available in a piano vocal edition published by Sonzogno. There also exists a dubious so-called Nuova Edizione, prepared in the year 1947 by someone named Renzo Bianchi. This was the version used when the opera was presented in 1986 by the New Jersey State Opera, where it was conducted by Alfredo Silipini. In Will Crutchfield's review of that production for the New York Times, he sorted through the various performing editions of the opera, coming down rather hard on Renzo Bianchi for taking enormous liberties with Leon Cavallo's original. Liberties which include the elimination of minor characters, the rewriting or transposition of substantial swaths of music, the truncation and sometimes even excision of key moments of the score, including arias for the tenor and soprano, and duets for the soprano with both the tenor and the baritone. Also, virtually all the backstage elements that make the first act in its original version so vital and engaging are simply eliminated. Unfortunately, this version is used far too frequently in those rare revivals of the work. Clara Petrella's 1969 Rai recording, for instance, not coincidentally also conducted by Silipigni, uses the truncated score, as apparently do the Favaro and Aprilia Millo versions. Recordings of the Dir che ci sono al mondo scene, which I have been discussing, by artists such as Diana Soviero and the late great Montserrat Caballé, as well as far too many others, use those vocal variants. Because the recast vocal line remains in primarily the same range as the Cherubini melody that Toto is playing on the piano, that weaving in and out of the chest range which Muzio uses to such advantage is completely eliminated. Is it clear that this situation irritates me somewhat? The result is that we lose a much more interesting counter-melody, if you will which, in Muzio's interpretation, renders the pathos of the sung text that much more palpable. Here is a translation of the words that Zaza sings. They say that there are such creatures in the world, born into ease 
and protected from evil. Chosen by a man, they go forth, happy wives and blessed mothers. They are ignorant of those of us who are hungry and living in the cold, who, exhausted by such horror, attempt to escape our shameful lives. We are the damned. Our hearts open in vain to hope. The world refuses to grant us love. What misery. Whatever will happen to me. And here is Claudia Muzio singing those very words. Dir che ci sono al mondo.
as one can hear, Muzio treads that precarious fine line where the bitterness, delusion, compassion, and self-pity of the text find the perfect balance in her vocal expression. In so doing, she finds the universality of Zadza's very specific anguish and, in a paraphrase of the late writer and reviewer Dale S. Harris, transforms the mawkish into great art. By the way, this line, which I have remembered verbatim for more than 40 years, was from the photo caption on a review from High Fidelity magazine in the year 1977 of Renata Scotto's studio recording of Puccini's Suara Angelica. It applies equally here. And speaking of Scotto, if only she or Magda Olivero had chosen to undertake the role of Zaza, surely either of them would have given us a performance to rival that of Muzio's. I'll dig deeper into Muzio's legacy at greater length in future episodes. She is but one of the many of my most beloved singers that I am so excited about sharing with you. Before I sign off, I do want to offer a special thanks to my friend Alan Segal, the wonderful composer who has provided some of the piano underscoring that you heard at various points throughout the podcast. You can find out more about Alan and his music by referring to the show notes at countermelodypodcast.com. I'd like to say a few final words about another favorite singer, one who in fact you are about to hear in the closing theme to the podcast. The extremely beautiful voice belongs to the French baritone Gérard Souzy in a 1953 recording in which he is accompanied by the pianist Jacqueline Bonneau. itself is an air de cour of the French Baroque composer Antoine Boisset, arranged by the Norwegian composer, poet, translator, singer, music collector, and cultural advisor Arne Durenskorn. I shall have more to say about these characters in the very near future. The closing words to the song Caché Beaux Yeux are Amour, pour toi nous avons pris l'espoir et non pas le mépris. Contempt. Amour pour toi, 
Meanwhile, my friends, until next time, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach.